A biological network is a group of living entities or components that are linked in some way to form a more cohesive whole. And if that explanation sounds a little vague and broad, there's a good reason for that. Biological networks are expansive and found in many shapes and sizes, and they're not always obvious in terms of being able to perceive them or even define or categorize them, even when they are ever-present and super-valuable. A food web, for instance, is probably one of the more well-known biological networks we can point to and say, okay, yeah, I get that. Sunlight or sometimes other types of environmentally available energy is converted into food for algae and plants. And those algae and plants are eaten by small creatures, which are eaten by larger creatures, and up and up and up to the seeming top of the food web, except that this is a web, so there's no real top. Even humans are eventually devoured for their energy when they die, decomposed by bacteria and fungi, and returned to the seemingly lower levels of the food web, from whence our species ancestors originally came. So you can have biological networks that are unified by their sharing of energy, like a food web. And there are also other sorts of intra-species networks, like those made up of pollinators and plants, or those made up of entities from the same species, like networks of termites working together, divvying up labor and optimizing their task allocation to build massive complex mounds, or between bottlenose dolphins who divvy up hunting and territorial defense responsibilities. But you can also find this type of network inside what we would usually consider to be a single organism. Metabolic networks, for instance, are made up of an insanely complex set of physical processes that take place within a cell. And these processes determine the physiological and biochemical properties of that cell. So the oxidization of food molecules, the processing of sunlight into usable energy, the breakdown of complex organic molecules into simpler molecules, like CO2 and H2O. Our body's fundamental energy management and utilization processes are reliant on biological networks made up of component chemicals, cells, proteins, and the like. Our brains are made up of a similar system, Similar in that it's composed of a bunch of tiny pieces working together to achieve a larger outcome that would not be achievable by any of those pieces in isolation, or by all of those pieces working together non-optimally. Neurons and glial cells are strung together and able to communicate via axons, and all these tiny bits and their component pieces, which are even smaller networks of biological matter, they create on the macro scale thinking and memory and perception, and according to some theories, consciousness and a sense of self. So whatever the scale, whatever the pieces we might be talking about, from the most micro level to the scale of a biologically active planet, from what happens within creatures to what happens between creatures, we see biological networks. But although this concept is useful, it's also troubling through a certain lens. Because if all of these pieces are connected, if it's just networks all the way down, 
and all the way up. And all of our networks are connected to other networks. Our metabolic system is connected via the food that we consume to that globe-spanning food web. Where do we draw the line between entities? Where does the larger biological mass cease and a bottlenose dolphin come into being? Where are you and your dog and the bacteria living on your skin and in your gut and your neighbor and their pet fish separated from each other? And are these lines that we accept, that we have through some lenses created between beings, actually real? Are they legitimate? Are they meaningful? Or do they actually prevent us from seeing other systems, other connections, other ways of organizing the world and all the living things in the world? What I want to talk about today is biology, and specifically how we carve up and label biological things, and the pros and cons inherent in this method of anatomical organization. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to unspool today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled, Is This Tissue a New Organ? Maybe. A conduit for cancer? It seems likely. I decided to start with this article rather than all the others that were published about this bit of news, because its headline and the piece itself were significantly less clickbaity than most of what was available from other publications. In most cases, the headlines blared something about a new organ having been discovered and how this new organ causes cancer, as if overnight some horrible creature had embedded itself in our bodies, threatening our well-being and safety, which is a bit of a misreading of the source material that all of these pieces are written about, to say the least. The real story is this. The science journal... Nature, or rather the online open access wing of Nature, which is called Scientific Reports, published a study at the end of March 2018, a study they received mid-May of 2017, by the way, in which they then, for almost a year, checked over for legitimacy, which is one of the more valuable gatekeeper-related responsibilities that legit science journals conduct, even though they often put such work behind expensive paywalls in the trade-off. Scientific reports, though, as I mentioned, is open access and subject to a Creative Commons license, which is lovely, and it makes this work far easier to access, and therefore, it's far easier to check the original source for all these sky-is-falling science stories, which is a very good habit to get into if you find yourself wanting to figure out what's really up. I will link in the show notes to a good intro piece for anyone who is not a scientist or a science writer, but who nonetheless wants to better understand and interpret scientific papers. But this paper, entitled Structure and Distribution of an Unrecognized Interstitium in Human Tissues, was checked out and published by Scientific Reports at the end of March, and in this piece, researchers present information about what the New York Times describes as, quote, a fluid-filled 3D latticework of collagen and elastin connective tissue that can be found all over the body, in or near our lungs, skin, digestive tracts, and arteries, end quote. 
and what the New York University School of Medicine described in a press release as a series of spaces, a highway of moving fluid, and, quote, a previously unknown feature of human anatomy, end quote. This interstitium, the fluid-filled cavities between our other tissue, seems to run throughout our bodies, possibly operating as a kind of shock absorber for our innards, and or as a conduit for fluids entering the lymphatic system. And that last part is why there's hubbub about this system potentially being a disease or cancer spreader. There's a chance that because of its reach, and because it seems to be an interface between the lymphatic and vascular systems, it could actually be a leading cause for why cancer and diseased cells are able to move around our bodies so quickly. As for why this fluid-like interface between other components of our body is being called an organ, one of the study's authors are quoted by the aforementioned press release as having said that the system is complex and seemingly important enough that it was almost, quote, an organ in its own right, end quote. But it's worth noting that not all of the researchers involved agree with that characterization, nor do many other researchers that were interviewed for the New York Times piece, including some of the scientists that were directly involved in the hands-on analysis of this structure. Speaking of which, why are we only discovering this probably not an organ now? If it's so important, why did we not notice it before? Well, we kind of did. We've known about this stuff for a while. It's just that because of how we studied it and the technologies we have had available to do the research, we weren't seeing it in action, and we were not seeing it as a component of a larger system. One analogy that I think works pretty well to describe why this might be the case is to think about fish and other creatures that live in the deepest parts of the ocean, way deep down, where the pressure from the water around them is massive. So their biological composition is way different from other seemingly similar fish higher up closer to the surface. If you take one of those deep ocean fish up to the surface without taking any precautions, they're likely to rupture, to explode, because the pressure from their innards are exerting force outward and are no longer pushing against all of that water weight from the ocean that's usually around them. The pressure from the outside decreases, and their composition, which evolved to have this huge amount of outward force, continues to push with ghastly results. These fish basically explode when you bring them up to the surface. Something like that seems to have happened here. Scientists for a long time have studied this material, but as soon as they take it out of the body, out of its proper environment, the fluid, this ocean-like latticework, collapses into something that's been described as, quote, crackly and dense. In other words, the structure changes to the point where the original composition, the original cellular structure, looks very different from how it usually looks inside a fully operational, healthy human body. New technologies, though, have allowed researchers to view this substance in situ, inside the body, using probes and modern imaging hardware. This gave them the ability to check these pathways as part of the larger human biological system and realize, okay, wow, 
this stuff might actually be important. It's as if for ages, we were researching lumps of gore and goo from the ocean, thinking that this was all that lurked down there in the deeper recesses of the ocean, because that's all we could see when we brought these things up to the surface to study them. But then we dropped a submarine down there and discovered, okay, holy wow, all that gore and goo is actually pieces of fish, and we never realized it before. We were completely wrong about this because of how we were conducting our research. So what we have here is a new understanding of an apparently very important component of the human anatomy, which first could help us understand how diseases are transmitted, and how cancerous cells are spread, and how information is shared between other systems in our body. But second, it also means we could potentially, if we come to understand this network better, figure out how to interface with it, and potentially stop certain aspects of what it does, or augment other beneficial aspects of what it does. We could possibly figure out how, for instance, to keep it from transporting cancerous cells around our bodies. Or maybe not. We simply don't know yet. But this revelation is important, whether this system is an organ or not, because it casts new light on our internal clockwork and provides insight into numerous other networks about which we already know something, but not everything. And the more of that whole we can see, the better our chances of taking some sort of control over these functions and applying our understanding and capabilities to make ourselves healthier, to help our bodies function more optimally, to maybe even live well longer. Whether this anatomical system, of which we've only recently become aware, or more fully aware at least, is destined to be classified as an organ or not, it elegantly demonstrates something about the classification of knowledge and systems that is important to keep in mind when exploring the world of biology, but also just about every other conceivable field as well. And what it demonstrates is that our classification systems are not perfect, nor are they destined. We've divided what we classify as life into domains, kingdoms, phylums, classes, orders, families, genera, and species. But none of those labels, or the order of those labels, or the properties used to distinguish one kingdom from another, one genus from another, are set in stone. This classification system, and many others like it, have proven useful in helping us identify important components of things, allowing us to understand the vital biological differences between creatures that might otherwise seem similar to each other if we were to just look at them. But if we were to spin up another version of Earth in an alternate dimension, chances are we would organize these things in a slightly or radically different way. It largely depends on who does the exploring, in what context, what else we know about the world when these classifications are put into common practice, and what came before, what other classifications we are replacing. Classifications that are perhaps so entrenched that it's easier to just add on to them, to work within or around them, rather than trying to sweep them away to make room for something new. Anatomical categorization began at least as early as 1600 BC, as we have an Egyptian writing, the Edwin Smith Surgical Papyrus, that demonstrates how organs are divided within the body from that time period. 
though it's likely that this work did not just arise out of thin air, and that surgeons and other experts of this era were already working within this space before this tangible evidence of their efforts was scribed. Much of the Egyptian understanding of the body, though, was pretty superficial, and they got a whole lot wrong. They assumed that the heart was the meeting point for every fluid-carrying vessel in the body, not just the blood-carrying veins and capillaries, and they invested some organs and tissue with spiritual powers rather than just standard physical properties. The Greeks, a little bit later, also took a shine to the study of anatomical systems, and they went out of their way to formalize the study of body parts, of internal organs, and just about anything that could be seen and cut up by people with their level of technology and science, which was not a whole lot because they didn't have microscopes or refrigeration or countless other technologies that came along much later in human history and which are useful for this type of study. So they didn't discover anything that would be fit to print today. But for their period of technological development by historical standards within that context, what they managed to figure out is borderline extraordinary. A lot of Greek anatomical knowledge was, like with the Egyptians, mixed up with religion. So anything that didn't quite make sense, or which they couldn't detect, or for which they lacked contextual information that would have illuminated things properly, they would generally explain away with some kind of intangible, unknowable essence. Blood, for instance, was considered to have an innate heat, some kind of magical energy inside of it, while the heart, by their reckoning, pumped both blood and managed the pneuma, which was a word referring to the breath or the soul, not the literal oxygen a person breathed, but the essence that made them a conscious person. And this spiritual air was also thought to be transported around the body by the blood vessels. The Greeks did manage to discover a whole lot by trial and error, and they figured out the outlines of several organs, including the kidneys, and how some of the biological systems, like the musculoskeletal system, worked together. A field called comparative anatomy popped up around this time, founded by Aristotle and some of his contemporaries, through which the researchers dissected many and many different animals and then compared and contrasted what they found, from the legs to the skulls to the arteries. This approach continued hundreds of years into the future, and eventually helped steer Darwin toward his theory of natural selection, which in turn led to the modern theory of evolution. The ancient world's approach to anatomy, and in fact the invention of anatomy as a formal field of study, began post-Aristotle, back in Egypt under Ptolemy I, or Ptolemy the Savior, who was a Macedonian Greek general under Alexander of Macedonia, also known as Alexander the Great, and Ptolemy ruled as a pharaoh of Egypt post-conquest and helped make Alexandria a poster child of Hellenistic Greek rule. Under Ptolemy's dynasty, which lasted three centuries, medical schools were established, and those running the schools were granted permission to dissect human cadavers, and in some cases, to vivisect criminals, which means to dissect them while they are still alive. This is a pretty gruesome thought, I know, but it did lead to the formalization 
of anatomical study and allowed a physician named Herephilos to cut up enough people that he was able to dispute Aristotle's theory that the heart was the seat of intelligence in a human being, theorizing instead that it was the brain. So, not great that something like 600 people were said to be vivisected by this guy, but at least he left us with a bit more understanding about the brain and the nervous system. I guess you take what you can get under such circumstances. There's another notable ancient anatomist named Galen, who was a Greek living in Rome, and who wrote many words on the subject of internal organs, most especially those found in the human abdominal cavity. Even though Galen never performed any actual human dissection, much less vivisection, because of the circumstances under which he lived, where that would not have been culturally appropriate, he was still able to dissect many animals. And he was a physician who worked with gladiators. So he got to see the still operating innards of many people while he attempted to treat them for their often grievous wounds. Galen ended up producing gobs of writing on the subject of anatomy. And about 100 of his works still survive today. And when published together, they fill about 22 modern-sized medical textbooks. His two most famous works are entitled On Anatomical Procedure and On the Uses of the Parts of the Body of Man. And these two works in particular shaped the world of anatomical knowledge for the next 1,300 years, that is, until the 16th century. In between, there were still notable students of anatomy, and some groundbreaking work was done, but many schools of medicine assumed that everything that needed to be discovered had already been discovered and documented by Galen and his ilk. Then came Leonardo da Vinci, who started illustrating human cadavers as a hobby in the late 15th century, and then began to formalize his study of human and animal bodies using Galen and his work as inspiration, producing many and very detailed sketches, showing cross-sections and multiple angles, something that he seems to have innovated, and which was an incredibly useful interface upgrade in terms of conveying information about anatomy visually on the printed page. Galen's work was first seriously challenged with the advent of the printing press, when his writings and the writings of many other people working in the field of medicine and anatomical studies were published at a price and in a quantity that allowed the vox populi to acquire and read them, rather than these works only being available to the wealthy and well-connected. A Belgian man named Andreas Vesalius read these works and then traveled far and wide to be able to dissect human cadavers because this was not a practice that was allowed in his home country. And then using this knowledge, he went on to challenge Galen's findings, publishing his own book that challenged what Galen had written point for point, and in many cases, drawing for drawing, essentially showing through illustrations far more detailed examples of bodies, of organs, of the circulatory system, of how they all fit together. He even went so far as to put on public demonstrations in front of crowds, opening up bodies to show that his observations about anatomy more closely reflected the innards of a human than Galen's did. It was a whole big thing, and it was fairly effective. This challenge 
to orthodoxy, and the feeling that budding anatomists should trust their eyes, not what the textbooks said. The textbooks from hundreds of years ago led to a revolution in the field, and many organs and systems were discovered over the course of the next 200 years, including an understanding of the circulatory system and how blood flows through it, and that the lymphatic system is separate from other complementary organs and systems. This surge in knowledge was amplified by the increase in available textbooks and other documents, which led to more writings and more sharing, and that, in turn, fueled a common interest in anatomy, which led to an increased acceptance of dissecting cadavers, and even led to shows, to demonstrations, where they would cut open corpses for crowds, much like a scholarly crowd today might attend a lecture at an art museum or watch an educational documentary. You would take a date out to watch a body get cut up by an anatomist who would point out pieces of interest as they worked. Modern anatomical study was carried on the back of all that interest. And atop the flywheel of increased knowledge and technology that emerged in the 16th through the 19th centuries. In the 20th and 21st centuries, our understanding of anatomy has been defined in large part by large-scale medical research conducted during and after World War I and World War II, and new knowledge acquired as a result of our leap forward in technological capabilities. The development of antibiotics, the development of MRI machines and CAT scanners, the refinement of the X-ray machine and sophisticated microscopes and refrigeration techniques, the forking of biological fields into more specialized subfields like endocrinology and molecular biology, our collective ability to see and manipulate things on the microscopic and nano scale. These fields, though, like organs and labeling the systems inside us, are just new ways to organize the information and the study of the information that we have available. We put labels on what we're researching so that we can gather up a collection of topics and focus on those rather than another collection, which has been likewise bundled together into some kind of comprehensible whole. Those labels are not arbitrary, but just like the segmentation of body pieces into various organs and systems where some individual at some point makes a decision about where one ends and the other begins, where those lines go. And just like book genres and human cultural identifications and corporate categorization and generations stratified by age range, none of these groupings was written in the stars. And this is important to recognize because the labels we use for things influences the way that we see them. If someone tells you another person is from a different culture from you, that may change the way you look at that person. It may warp your perception of the things that they do. Similarly, if you grow up in a time where Galen's interpretation of anatomy is the true and correct one, and you open up a corpse and find something different than what he found, you may perceive the situation as you're having made a mistake. He's gone through and defined all these human bits after all. So if you see something differently than he saw it, and what you see rearranges things in a non-Galen way, well, who are you to challenge the master, the anatomist who has defined the field for hundreds of years? These organizational systems are not wrong, but they're not the only way to categorize and label things effectively and usefully.
Keeping that in mind makes it easier to both make use of the value inherent in current organizational methods, while also leaving yourself open to new, potentially superior organizational models that may emerge later, and which you yourself might come to discover or define. This topic is of particular importance in a space like anatomy, as the more we learn about ourselves, our bodies, the more we realize that our sense of self, our sense of being an independent, isolated entity, is not really aligned with what we know about the biological world. Consider, for instance, the microbiome, which is, to quote the Human Microbiome Project, the ecological community of commensal, symbiotic, and pathogenic microorganisms that make up all multicellular organisms. What that means is that everything we would generally consider to be a creature, an animal, or a plant, anything multicellular, so that's a big tent inclusive group of biological entities, they're all made up of numerous little creatures, wee beasties that work together, maybe fight a little bit, but overall operate within a generally balanced biological system that makes this larger macro creature function. Human beings are very much a part of this group of multicellular organisms. And one of the major revelations in our understanding of the human body came about in the late 19th century with the conception of an idea called commensalism, which basically describes a type of relationship between two organisms where one benefits from the other, but does so in a non-harmful, non-parasitic way. This concept allowed scientists to reframe their perception of how certain creatures interacted and coexisted with other creatures. And then, with the evolution of technologies that allowed us to first view microscopic creatures and come to better understand the world of bacteria and fungi and the like, and then with the development of modern genetic studies, which allowed us to pull apart the human genome to see what makes it tick, we came to realize that, okay, huh, the human body is not so human. The supportable numbers here have varied over the years, and in fact can vary in the same person, minute by minute, based on whether, for instance, they have just taken a shower or used the bathroom. But in general, you are likely made up of somewhere in the neighborhood of half to a quarter human cells in total. Previous estimates, previous being up until last year, so this is super new science, and there is room for further adjustment here, but previous estimates have placed the human to non-human cell ratio as high as 1 to 10 or even 1 to 100. But it's now thought by most researchers in this space that the number is more balanced than that. But even so, at the low end, half or more of our cells are not human cells. Those other non-human cells inside us are instead bacteria, fungi, archaea, and viruses. And this ratio, by the way, does not include micro-animals like mites, which live all over our skin and under our eyelids and in our mouths and all kinds of other uncomfortable-to-think-about places. This figure only includes the stuff that is blended in with our other cells, other creatures that have melded with us to create a community, an ecosystem of entities that, when looked at from a distance, we perceive to be a human. Importantly, without these non-human cells, our bodies wouldn't work. We have borrowed liberally 
from all these other creatures to ensure all of our parts, our organs, our internal processes work. Some of them are responsible when these processes go out of whack, too, making us sick. But in general, if you tried to purify yourself of non-human cells, you would most likely die pretty quickly. A human, by definition, is not an entity made up entirely of human cells. A human is an ecosystem of lots of exotic stuff, some of it human, some of it non-human, all of it working together to make sure that macro-human, the human ecosystem, functions and survives. Which makes one wonder why we are distinguishing between these components in the first place. I mean, if for a human to exist, to live, we require so-called non-human cells, shouldn't those cells just be human cells? Isn't it weird to divide up these pieces in this way that no longer really makes sense according to our current scientific understanding? This is a good question, and it's also a good example of how our labels can shape perception. Even when our understanding outside of those labels, and perhaps even in a way that conflicts with those labels, has changed. So is there a possibility that we will reassess these relationships and what they mean for our bodies and sickness and wellness in general and redefine the way we approach anatomy at some point in the future? Yes, I think that's very possible. It would be kind of disappointing if we didn't do this at some point, actually. And the more we refine our understanding of the big picture, the clearer the little picture, the micro-scale understanding will become as well. We may find that our perception of how things actually work is way off, just like the ancient Egyptians and the Greeks, with their spirituality-imbued understanding of our internal organs. They had some things right, but because they were missing the bigger picture, the fundamental concepts that defines how all these pieces work, they were wrong enough for it to hamstring their ability to solve many of the problems that they encountered. These sorts of definition changes can be monumental for any field of inquiry. This is why it's so wonderful when we have new theories about how the universe was formed, and new wild ideas about what dark matter might be, and things like that. Each new theory brings with it a possible new organizational model that could be more practical than our current model, or which could allow us to see things that we could not see before through the lens of our previous model. It's the equivalent of replacing a pneuma-based conception of life and consciousness with something more defensible and provable under our current understanding and technological capabilities of how our internal systems work. Based on what I've read in the science journals and a few of the better science news sites recently, there's a pretty good chance we will be seeing more treatments, or at least tests for treatments, in the relative near future that make use of the microbiota-based understanding of our bodies, that attempt to rebalance things rather than nuking things with powerful drugs. So it may be that we eventually change the nature of drugs entirely so that they trigger different things in our bodies than they do today. Or maybe drugs will just introduce certain organisms that we currently lack, which will then allow our existing systems to reboot or rebalance themselves more gently. What humans 100 years from now think of when they hear the word medicine or treatment might be as different from our current perception of those things 
as our current perception is from what the ancient Egyptians thought of when they thought about healing their sick and injured. In the meantime, though, the organ-based model of organization and the systems therein are still pretty useful to us, and there are some nifty things happening within the organ world, things that may help us dramatically increase our potential for discovery and development and understanding within our current medicinal and anatomical space. One development that may at first seem a little bit boring, but which is actually a very big deal, is the introduction and refinement of so-called organs on chips, or OOCs, which are kind of like microchips that you find in computers, but instead of a bunch of silicon processors and wiring, they contain cell structures and chemicals that mimic the activities, mechanics, and physiological responses of organs, and in some cases even entire biological systems. What this means in practice is that if you want to test a new drug, Traditionally, you would need to do animal trials, followed by human trials, and you'd probably have computer modeling conducted inside of software throughout that whole process. Now, this entire process can take years and can lead to the deaths of thousands of lab animals, and it introduces the eventual human test subjects to potential danger as well. Being able to test these medications on little microchips, though, means that you can see how your substance will interact with internal organs and make changes accordingly and can do so without putting these living creatures in danger. What's more, you can do thousands of experiments simultaneously and have the chip output very accurate data about what happened within the cells and the chemicals contained on that chip. So it makes the data reporting and measurement process faster and more accurate as well. You can get valuable numbers unencumbered by possible externalities like random mutations in animal test subjects or environmental differences between labs. This is still a very young field, but there are already functioning chips for lungs, hearts, kidneys, arteries, skin, and gut tissue being produced by a bunch of different companies. And there are further efforts to connect many of these components into a larger so-called human on a chip, which would allow medications and treatments to be tested on multiple human systems at once. So rather than being limited to isolated systems and organs, researchers could note any possible changes in the relationships between these systems as a consequence of these drugs and treatments as well. Now, we will see what happens in this space. I suspect with time, we'll actually get better at mapping chemicals and organs and the like within software, and we'll be able to accurately introduce new chemicals and new medicines and treatments into that simulated software body. And we'll be able to say with a great deal of certitude what will happen in the real world when these medicines are fabricated and treatments given. That software-based route is already being used in somewhat limited ways, and there's a lot of room for growth there, especially since the cost of operation of doing tests would drop to nearly zero if we were able to refine the software and process the simulations on commercially available hardware. We'll see. If that goes far, that could leapfrog the organ-on-a-chip industry. But very likely, in the immediate future, these two technology directions will play well together. Another organ-related space that's evolving like crazy is the organ production industry, which allows for the fabrication 
of organs and complete biological systems to replace those that have been injured or deteriorated by disease. This method might also be a means of helping humans live longer, allowing us to discard our old components and replace them with new ones, like you would with tires or timing belts that have worn out on your car. There are three main methods that are currently being pursued to achieve this end. And the first is perhaps the most strange in that it does away with the traditional method of growing organs, the natural inside or on a biological body method. And that is 3D printing new organs in separate machines. Now it's important to note that these organs are being grown from legit organ cells. In fact, they are typically printed using stem cells pulled from the intended recipient so that there are not any issues with the body rejecting a new liver or lung or skin. And they're often grown in what amounts to fancy vats printed layer by layer, operating a lot like other types of 3D printer. But instead of printing with plastics, these devices print with cells. What's particularly interesting here, in my mind, is that researchers working in this space have been able, at times, to convert existing machinery, sometimes with a few tweaks, but sometimes right out of the box, to work with cells instead of other materials. So it's possible to print skin using some off-the-shelf printers, and it's possible, with some minor adjustments, to print capillary-like tubes, not usable capillaries yet, but more of a proof of concept to show that it can be done once the operable resolution of these printers reaches a tiny enough scale, which would then allow these tubes to be printed at the appropriate size and actually utilized as capillaries. So at the moment, we can print simple structures like skin tissue using what amounts to an inkjet printer loaded with cellular materials that polymerize when they come into contact with calcium ions that are loaded onto the substrate, the printing surface. We also have machines that utilize extrusion printing technologies, the kind of thing you see on many typical 3D printers these days. And although this method is a lot slower than the inkjet printing, it also allows those cell droplets to build up into more complex and stable three-dimensional shapes. The big challenge here, again, is dealing with the resolution issue, as there are very small components to our organs that are not visible, but which are nonetheless very important if they're going to work properly. And one of the fundamentals that is currently being pursued in that direction is figuring out how to embed the vascular system, the system that pumps blood through the organs, into the printed organ ahead of time while they are being printed rather than this being something that would need to be very carefully, agonizingly carved out after the fact. It's assumed that sorting out the details here could help solve the organ transplant shortage experienced around the world on a regular basis, but it will also help doctors practice dangerous surgical procedures on real tissue, on actual organs, before they perform them on humans. And one existing side effect of this effort has been the invention of materials like so-called living ink, which is used in some of these printers, which doubles as a sort of organ on a chip. So this ink, like those chips, allows companies to test medicines and even things like cosmetics on non-living biological material instead of using it on animals, which dramatically lessens the potential for side effects in these lab animals and someday could end up replacing the use of lab animals completely. 
And finally, organs are also being grown, not from a printer, but in and on actual creatures. An early version of this technique was demonstrated in 1997 and involved a rodent called the Vacanti mouse, which was a hairless mouse that had an ear-shaped growth on its back, which was produced by seeding cow cartilage cells into a biodegradable ear-shaped mold, which was then implanted under the mouse's skin and allowed to grow all by itself within its mouse host. Such an ear, then, or anything else grown on a mouse that you happen to have handy, could then be removed and implanted onto or into a human. This ear mouse, as it later became known, is kind of a gross concept and one that makes me wonder if some of us will end up growing spare parts for rich overlords in and on our bodies at some point as part of some dystopian future. But the concept demonstrated on the ear mouse is now being explored in other ways. And perhaps most promising, in my opinion at least, is the ability to grow our own body parts back on our own bodies, to be able to be our own ear mice. Now, it's hard to say which of these solutions will be the next big thing, defining perhaps hundreds of years of human medicine, and which will be stopgaps until the actual next big thing arrives, whether it's some new organ-based system or something like redefining our bodies as a series of networks, or coming to fully embrace the fact that we are a collection of smaller creatures, or maybe something even more fundamental and radical, an understanding of ourselves and all the tiny creatures that make up the super being we think of as ourselves, as mere collections of energy working together, all of our component pieces interacting with each other and with the things that we consume and the creatures that produce the things we consume and the energy resources like the sun from which they derive their energy, we may come to define a new holistic system that we are all plugged into, are all a part of, and which, when more thoroughly labeled and understood, might help us grasp fundamental truths that today we are looking right past or which we can't yet see because we don't have the language or the technology to notice those truths. Categorizations can help us organize the world, can help us see the relationships between things, but they also, by definition, diminish other relationships, other organizational methods, and other ways of seeing things. There's a lot to be gained from our current organ-based layout of human anatomy But in this and all other organizational models, a great deal of our success and continued growth will come down to our ability to evolve and eventually move past the way we perceive, label, and understand things today. Today, instead of recommending a book, I would like to recommend a pair of podcasts. And I really do recommend them as a pair because they are both, I think, quite good individually. But when you listen to both of them, you get to hear very different sides, very different facets of the same sorts of topics. And I think that makes them particularly valuable because they conflict with each other. 
on those important points. And the two podcasts are Intercepted, hosted by Jeremy Scahill, and Waking Up, hosted by Sam Harris. These hosts and the communities behind them, in the case of Intercepted, it is The Intercept and the founders of The Intercept, including Glenn Greenwald. And on the waking up side of things, it's Sam Harris and the so-called New Atheists and that collection of ideologies and such. In both cases, we have very powerful personalities who are very intelligent people and who have a whole lot of impressive background and who are very good communicators, very good debaters and interviewers in many different ways, but they come from radically different parts of the political and ideological spectrum. And to the point where periodically, unfortunately, Sam Harris and Glenn Greenwald, that co-founder of The Intercept, have debates and arguments and antagonize each other on the internet, which is kind of disappointing, as it sort of diminishes both of them when they get into that. But that is a reflection of the fact that they have diametrically opposed views on many, many things. At the same time, I enjoy both of these podcasts because they are so well-reasoned, so well-produced, and because neither side fits at all well into any main political party's categorization. There's no Democrat or Republican here. Both sides kind of piss off both Democrats and Republicans. Neither side is a traditional booster for any traditional political candidate coming from these big parties. And that, to me, typically means that they have much more interesting and nuanced things to say. They are not refining every little detail of what they say to try to fit in with the largest group of people. And I find myself, in both cases, agreeing with both sides, two sides that, again, are diametrically opposed in a lot of cases, agreeing with both of them, like 70 to 85% of the time, which is interesting. There's a lot of crossover here in the way that they think. It's just that they come to very different conclusions. And to me, it's incredibly valuable to be exposed to smart people with whom you disagree about some things, about many things, about just a few things, but in any case, being exposed to alternative views, well-reasoned views, that's a valuable experience. So if you only listen to one of these now, I recommend listening to the other as well. If you don't listen to either one, well, get ready. There's going to be a whole lot of new and interesting ideas coming your way. In either case, I would recommend taking these as a pair and approaching them in the way that I've just described as something that you can agree with or disagree with, but that you should ideally recognize as being valuable because it is an exposure to well-presented ideas that you may or may not agree with. And whether you do or do not, it's still an okay, valuable experience to have. Again, that's Intercepted and Waking Up, two different podcasts that you can get for free wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on the social networks. I am at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and YouTube and such. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.